0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. We might have some doubts about whether the marketplace that creates and benefits from our distraction can really promise to heal us from it. So how can we think outside this cycle, the loop that keeps us traveling the circuit from anxious distraction to self-discipline and back again?
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Next Big Idea Daily, the show that offers up bite-sized lessons for you to enjoy with your morning coffee. This week, our focus is on focus, that special human ability to train our attention on a task or an experience for an extended period, minutes, or even hours. We've all felt that pleasure, that sense of getting deeply immersed in our work, achieving that sense of flow. But for most of us, it's all too rare, especially at a time when we can be pinged pretty much 24-7. But even before the age of modern communications, this problem was noticed by some of our great thinkers. Yale English professor Caleb Smith has dug deep into the history of distraction and how writers and other intellectuals of previous eras managed their own attention. Here he is to share some key insights from his book, Thoreau's Acts, Distraction and Discipline in American Culture.
0: These days, if you look around our culture, flipping through the channels or reading a newspaper or browsing the self-help aisle at a popular bookstore, you can see that anxieties about distraction are all over the place. People are really worried, and for good reasons, about shorter attention spans, about too much information and disinformation, about all the ways that our thoughts are being manipulated, about how our attention is being directed and redirected, maybe by our employers, by our markets, or by our media, especially online social media. And while you're looking around our culture, seeing all this worry about distraction, you'll also see how, over and over again, people keep proposing the same kind of solution. It always seems to come down to discipline. For instance, they tell you that you've got to break your bad mental habits and learn some new, better habits. And to get there, you've got to practice some new mental or even spiritual exercises, new styles of meditation or mindfulness, new ways of focusing your attention. They might tell you that you can use these techniques to improve your everyday mental health, or to improve your personal relationships, to become more creative, to achieve greater productivity at work. After a while, you might start to wonder, how long has this been going on? If discipline is a solution to distraction, why hasn't it worked? Why does the same cycle keep on repeating itself? We know that, in our consumer society, advertisers are good at creating and stoking new desires, even new needs, to keep us always shopping for new products. All that stimulation is a big part of our distraction. But as we keep hearing sales pitches for new disciplines of attention, we might have some doubts about whether the marketplace that creates and benefits from our distraction can really promise to heal us from it. So how can we think outside this cycle? the loop that keeps us traveling the circuit from anxious distraction to self-discipline and back again. Distraction has a history, so does attention. In Thoreau's Acts, I try to see distraction and the disciplines of attention within a history that goes back way before email and cell phones and social media platforms. As a matter of fact, you could go back almost forever. Scholars who study the practices of classical philosophers or who explore the prayer regimens of medieval monks will remind us that people have been struggling against some kinds of distraction for thousands of years. Ancient philosophers and seekers developed sophisticated techniques, sometimes known as spiritual exercises, to train and guide their own attention. They wanted to detach their minds from the cares and passions of what they called this world, the material and social world of everyday life they wanted to turn their attention to higher, eternal, spiritual matters. Even now, lots of writers and attention gurus call back to those ancient traditions as sources of inspiration. My book goes back only two or three hundred years, not two or three thousand. But I do look into some efforts to revive older religious traditions. For many centuries, when Christians thought about the sources of distraction, they didn't think about video games or even newspapers. They thought about the devil or about demons or about sin. One minister in the early 1700s gave a whole sermon exploring the question when is distraction a sin, and when is it only a lesser offense, a human weakness that deserves forgiveness? The minister's lesson was that people could overcome the devil's distractions by exercising their free will. For instance, by concentrating on the sermon that the minister was preaching just then in just that church. These traditions help us understand that the problem of distraction is not exactly a new one. But there's also a risk in seeing distraction as a perennial problem, something that has always been with us and always will be as part of our human nature. Paradoxically, this way of thinking leaves us more or less back where we started, with the sense that distraction can only be overcome through personal disciplines. Or else, after the rise of secular scientific understandings of our human nature, it leaves us with the sense that distraction is really a medical problem, best left to doctors and pharmaceutical companies. Really, thinking historically means seeing distraction as an old problem, but it also means seeing how the problem has changed over time under different conditions. The title of my book, Thoreau's Axe, comes from a passage from the great American writer and naturalist Henry David Thoreau. As you probably know, in the 1840s, Thoreau famously went to live by himself in the woods on the shores of Walden Pond outside Concord, Massachusetts. But something happened just as he was getting started. While he was cutting some white pine trees to build his little house, his mind began to wander, and he broke the axe that he had borrowed from a friend. And so Thoreau had to repair the axe, and while he worked on it, he did some soul-searching about his own state of mind. Thoreau ended up writing some passages about distraction and attention that still resonate today. For instance, he wrote about new technologies, Our inventions are wont to be pretty toys which distract our attention from serious things. He also talked about how the human mind can be, as he put it, permanently profane by the habit of attending to trivial things. In some ways, Thoreau sounded like an ancient philosopher or a religious mystic, and he did know about those traditions. But Thoreau was also saying something different, something new. He was saying that the sources of distraction are not in our human nature, They are artificial. They are in the economy, in modern systems of production and consumption, in the ways we work and in the ways we try to entertain ourselves. Already in Thoreau's lifetime, industry was making new demands on workers' attention in factories and workshops. Commerce was making new demands on consumers' attention in advertising, the news media, and the marketplace. Thoreau is sometimes remembered as a hermit out in the woods, but he was really far from alone. Lots of other writers, people of faith, and activists felt the same way. As far away as Louisiana, a Creole poet and mystic named Edrian Rouquette called the 19th century an age of machines and money. In Philadelphia, a judge and reformer worried about the wayward and restless youths who throng the places of cheap and vulgar amusement in which the city abounds. And so 19th century thinkers came to see distraction more or less as we do now. As an effect of modern economic and technological forces. But then, at the same time, while they were updating their theory of distraction as a problem, they still kept turning back to the same old solution, back to discipline. If distraction is an effect of economic conditions, so is attention. What took shape in the 19th century was a predicament that we're still stuck in now. Even when we understand that distraction's real causes are in the large-scale economic systems and technologies that shape our world, we keep trying to solve the problem with personal disciplines. Whether these disciplines are imposed by institutions or taken up voluntarily, their function is to privatize the rehabilitation of our own attention. Even when we know that big business is causing and profiting from our distraction, we feel guilty and we make ourselves personally responsible. Sometimes this responsibility looks like repression, as in the case of a youth prison. Sometimes it can be quite strange and beautiful, as in the many spiritual exercises and practices of devotion that are recorded in our literature. Reading that literature is my own discipline of attention. But one important conclusion we can draw from history is that real attention requires some free time and some shelter, which are harder and harder to come by in the modern economy. People need more control over their own time and more protection from manipulation. To deal with the problem of distraction, we would have to transform our economic conditions, not just ourselves.
1: Thank you, Caleb. Listeners, I hope this look back at the past of distraction will help you design a focused day today. But if you're going to do one more thing before diving into your deep work, maybe make it downloading the Next Big Idea app, a resource that will help you derive the best, most useful ideas from hundreds of nonfiction books. Just look for it in your app store and come back tomorrow when we'll wrap up the week with author Juliette Funt, who will share some ideas from her book, A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness and Do Your Best Work. See you then.